Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone wish to require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop update on Merkel cell carcinoma. And this is a very important program. It's one that we actually have never offered before, and we hope to offer on a more regular basis to all of you. So um, we have wonderful speakers on today's program. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And it's because of that collaboration and all of our work together that we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 528 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we have international participants from Belgium, Canada, Costa Rica, Italy, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. So really, it's a bit of a global call as well. Now, today's program is supported by EMD Serrano and Pfizer. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today and also for their corporate partnership in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and um, I want to get right into the program because I know that's what you really all want to hear. Our first, and I also, also want to remind all of you that there will be time um, um, toward the end of the program to take questions. So kind of as you're listening to the speakers, if you have questions, begin to jot them down so that when we have a Q&A, you'll be able to kind of pose your questions to us, okay? Um, so our first speaker is Dr. Paul Neum, and Dr. Neum is professor and head, University of Washington Dermatology, George F. Audlin Endowed Chair, affiliate investigator, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, professor, adjunct of pathology and oral health sciences, clinical director, skin oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Neum is going to address what is Merkel cell carcinoma? Symptoms of Merkel cell carcinoma, diagnosis and staging, and communicating communication tips with specialists on your healthcare team. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Niam. Hi, good morning. Uh, I'm pleased to get a start on things by talking about what is Merkel cell carcinoma, and that in and itself is, is a pretty dynamic topic. I think um, all of the speakers on the phone would agree today that Merkel cell carcinoma was not something that we learned about in medical school. And uh, really, prior to the 1990s, uh, it was not easy to make this diagnosis. Um, and uh, some tests were developed in the 1990s that allowed us to recognize that this, that this disease was a unique entity and to catch the vast majority of the cases. And that really changed the, began to change the, the landscape. As many of you know, the landscape has greatly changed in the, in the most recent few years with the discovery of the Merkel cell polyomavirus, the role of the immune system in fighting the cancer, and now with uh, exciting agents that are changing the way that we manage this cancer when it's more advanced. But broadly speaking, coming back to the topic, it's, it's a cancer that affects about 2,000 people newly each year in the United States. Uh, it's thus, thus about 30 times less common than melanoma. And it's not a coincidence that uh, there hasn't been a lot of education about it in the past because uh, there wasn't as much research about it. And uh, now there's exciting research and there's exciting things that change um, the way that we can manage it. And I think we all believe that there's going to be more useful resources and education as we go forward. So what causes this cancer is now 
just very recently become clear that there are two potentially quite independent causes. They may interact um, in many cases, but one in about 80% of cases of Merkel cell carcinoma is the Merkel cell polyoma virus, which is very common, doesn't normally cause any problems, is often on our normal skin, and through a series of incredibly rare genetic mistakes and accidents that neither the virus nor the skin cell wants to happen, it can combine into, into our DNA very rarely, and then in one in 3,000 people over their lifetime, they would get this cancer, um, in part usually by the, the virus driving it. Uh, it can also be caused by ultraviolet light, and we believe very clearly that about one in five cases is caused probably only by sunlight, and um, those cases, uh, you know, also uh, uh, can be, you know, quite significant, quite, um, uh, quite tricky to manage. Um, and importantly, as we'll get into later, some of my colleagues, they'll be talking more about, you know, the, the more advanced immune therapies. But those immune therapies can work against either the virus-driven or the, uh, the sunlight-driven cancer because both of those types can be visible to the immune system. So what are the symptoms of Merkel cell carcinoma? Unfortunately, uh, we all agree that the, initially when you see a Merkel cell carcinoma, it's a very bland thing. Most doctors and patients think they're looking at a, a cyst or an inflamed hair follicle or something like this uh, and, uh, it, or insect bite. And the trick, one of the tricks is it often happens on sun-exposed skin, and it's big and, and often red, but not tender, usually. And so that might be a, a trick that, that points people towards, um, you know, getting care and, and getting that biopsy that, that is really critical. And now, again, since the 1990s, once a pathologist looks at this under the microscope, they really do not have a very hard time making the diagnosis of Merkel cell carcinoma uh, under the microscope. In terms of diagnosis and staging, uh, as I said, these are usually thought to be kind of boring-looking things, and most of the time the doctor does the biopsy, they think they're, they're, they're taking off a, a cyst or, a, or, or a, a little fatty growth or something like that. But then, then the diagnosis usually becomes quite clear, and then staging has been evolving, but broadly, like with many cancers, initially the size is linked to how uh, how, how we stage the cancer. Bigger ones are, are, are stage two, smaller ones are stage one, where two centimeters is the sort of line in the sand there. And then stage three is, is associated with having spread to lymph nodes, and stage four is uh, being distant at the time of diagnosis. And of course, stage is, is one of the things that we really use to decide how patients should be treated and how they should be followed over time for uh, tracking possible recurrences and such. And finally, uh, communication tips with specialists on your healthcare team. Uh, this would be a really big deal. I think patients often tell us that the doctor who made the diagnosis is just as surprised as the patient to find out that it's a Merkel cell carcinoma. And as I'll come back to my first comment, that back you know a few years ago and even today, Merkel cell carcinoma is not a major topic in medical school because it's relatively rare, and so. A lot of docs are just not familiar with managing this. So it is very important, I, I suspect I'll get a chorus of agreement from Drs. Uh, Sondak and Coit, that at least initially it's very important to get some multidisciplinary 
input from people who are really quite familiar with managing this cancer. And then those folks can give recommendations and work with your local team, uh, whether you happen to have a specialty center really close to where you're living or not. It's probably important to get uh, you know, some, some good input from people who are quite familiar with managing this and, and then have them integrate with your local team or get some of your early care, um, significant um, cancer care uh, at a center that uh, really does focus on this. So I think those are the, the topics I wanted to hit on and of course I'll be um, happy to, to answer questions later. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Nian. That was an outstanding presentation. Really set the context for the program today, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, and our next speaker uh, is Dr. Daniel Coit. Dr. Coit is leader, melanoma disease management, attending surgeon, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of surgery, Wild Cornell Medical College. Uh, Dr. Coit is going to address the role of surgery in the treatment of, of, of Merkel cell carcinoma, um, current standard of care for early early stage Merkel cell carcinoma, including radiation treatment, and preparing for your appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. DeCoit. Oh, thanks so much, Carolyn. I, I appreciate the invitation to speak and, uh, and to participate with Paul and Vern on this, uh, what I think is a very important uh, <clears throat> panel. Even though it's a rare disease, uh, it's teaching us a great deal about management of cancer. Um, my my uh, assigned topic is is really the initial management of Merkel cell, which may involve just surgery, just radiation, or a combination of the two. And I wanted to try to put some of these into perspective. And, and I'm going to first talk about management of the primary tumor, uh, and then I'm going to talk about management of the regional lymph nodes. With regard to the primary tumor, uh, there while there are a, a number of ways of approaching it, uh, the first uh, and most important guiding principle is to get the thing out completely. Um, there have never been any clinical trials that have defined the optimal margin of excision, uh, uh, and so most of us use uh, our clinical judgment and get about a centimeter both uh, around it, on, around the skin and underneath it to make sure it's all out. Um, but uh, again, there are no absolute rules for this, and these uh, these guidelines are often tailored a little bit to uh, various anatomic sites. Um, there are uh, as as uh, uh, there are some risk factors for where you might consider a, a wider excision. Uh, one pathologic feature, in particular, is something called lymphovascular invasion, which might be a predictor of uh, local recurrence after. Adequate wide excision, but some of these uh, some of these are uh, contra more controversial than others. Uh, I think suffice to say it's important to achieve a uh, a wide excision, uh, a complete excision with a pathologically negative margin. Now there are some places where that can't be done. Sometimes you'll see a Merkel cell on the finger or involving uh, the hand or or some other critical structures, and it turns out that. Surgery is not the only way to get rid of a primary Merkel cell. Radiation can be a very effective way. It takes a little longer. It's a little bit trickier to do, uh, but it is. Uh, it, it, radiation can be used where either uh, surgical resection is not at all possible or where a wider excision would compromise uh, function. So I think it is. It is important to recognize that 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 radiation can be used. Uh, either uh, instead of or as an adjunct to surgery where 
adequate or satisfactory margins cannot be achieved. Um, one of the areas of, of real controversy in Merkel cell cancer and, and uh, is whether radiation therapy should routinely be given after complete excision of the primary uh, of the primary tumor. And there are not good data for that. I think most of the concern about the risk, that's the, the fear that surgery alone is not, a, not good enough, are really based on very old, not contemporary studies. It, it actually appears that, um, from more contemporary series, that, that after complete surgical excision, uh, the risk of, of recurrence at the site of the primary may be less than previously thought, and it may well be that, that uh, radiation is not needed in a preventative setting if an adequate wide excision margin can be achieved in the majority of patients. Um, the second issue I wanted to talk about uh, briefly is the whole concept of the regional lymph nodes. Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, Merkel cell carcinomas uh, uh, loves to travel to lymph nodes. Uh, the word we use is nodotrophic, but even very small uh, uh, tumors have a propensity to uh, to spread to regional lymph nodes, and the, the, the probability is on the order of somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of patients, even, but e again, even patients with very small tumors. And out of this has grown an approach that was initially birthed in melanoma, made widely popular in uh, breast cancer, called lymph node mapping with sentinel lymph node biopsy. And this is a technique where uh, using a radioactive dye, a nuclear medicine ph physician can identify the first lymph node to which Merkel cell cancer would travel if it were going to travel. And then the surgeon uh, in the operating room at the time the wide excision of the primary lesion is being done can identify the, uh, and re retrieve the lymph node that, that was uh, pointed out by the nuclear medicine doctor and hand that to a, a specially trained pathologist who, uh, if, they're, if they know what they're looking for, can see uh, really minute amounts of Merkel cell tumor in regional lymph nodes um, in about 20 to 30 percent of, of patients. Um, and uh, whereas in, in um, uh, and then this can then be treated. Now, it used to be, and again, these treatment paradigms are changing, it used to be that if a positive cell, a sentinel node was detected in Merkel cell patient, they would be treated as we've treated other patients of the past with, uh, by removing the remainder of the lymph nodes. Um, I think there's emerging evidence that if that, that we can achieve uh, very much the same very excellent results in terms of control of that lymph node basin with radiation therapy instead of removal of lymph nodes um, with uh, arguably less uh, in the way of side effects to patients. This is an evolving issue, uh, how best to treat this positive sentinel node when it happens, uh, but at least in our experience, uh, those patients with a positive lymph node who've had radiation uh, virtually never recur in their in the radiated lymph node basin. And so uh, it may be that uh, that's a less uh, less morbid, I fewer side effect way of treating uh, regional lymph nodes when they are involved. Um, the only other thing I want to say about the lymph nodes is that traditionally, um, in in uh, other diseases such as breast cancer or melanoma, uh, the finding of a of a microscopic disease in a lymph node has always portended a very poor prognosis. It's been used for staging. 
And uh, this, seem, this, this may be so, but to a much, much lesser degree in Merkel cell cancer. It seems that if you identify these lymph nodes early and treat them, um, it's almost, and I'll say almost as if uh, uh, the prognosis, is, the outlook is almost as good as uh, had the nodes not be involved in the fir- been involved in the first place. So in general, our approach has been to uh, look at lymph nodes in, in almost everybody. In other words, people who do not have uh, enormous uh, competing comorbidities, uh, other other health risk factors, which would make looking for the lymph nodes uh, uh, hazardous. Um, I want to say a brief word about prognosis, and this really goes to preparing for your visit. Um, virtually everybody, when they get the call from the dermatologist that says they have Merkel cell cancer, says, what's that? The dermatologist says, I don't know too much about it. And so the next thing they do is ask Dr. Google. And most of the information on the Internet um, starts out with uh, uh, the line, Merkel cells, an incredibly aggressive and usually lethal cancer. And that's simply not true anymore. I think that's reflective of older data that maybe was analyzed with uh, less um, rigor than we are looking at more contemporary series, where, in fact, most patients with local, uh, localized Merkel cell cancer are cured. Um, with fairly simple interventions. Now, we take this seriously as we would any any skin cancer, but um, I think the, 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 the first thing to realize as you prepare for your visit is that you need to uh, look at um, quality information on the Internet uh, and, and try to stay away from older data. Um, and I think uh, at, at the risk of plugging uh, my, my uh, good friend Paul Neum, uh, Paul has put together a very nice uh, website that's exceedingly informative with contemporary information about Merkel cell cancer, and I think it's one of the uh, one of the real contributions uh, for patients uh, trying to understand this very unusual disease. Um, so make sure that the diagnosis is correct. Uh, try to educate yourself a little bit with contemporary information. And then come in and listen to what your physician has to say about management of the primary tumor, management of the regional lymph nodes, uh, integrating uh, surgery and radiation uh, where necessary. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all today, and uh, we'll uh, uh, look forward to answering any questions you might have uh, in the discussion section. Thank you so much, Dr. Coit. Another outstanding presentation and really um, also giving people really more state-of-the-art information about Merkel cell carcinoma, so to not be looking at old websites, which is really not relevant. And I'm going to, we will get to all of you, Dr. Niem's um, website, so we all, you all have that information as well, um, so that you can access some more state-of-the-art uh, informational sites for your informa- for your getting information, in addition to the call today in your, in your healthcare team. And our next speaker is Dr. Vernon Sondak. Dr. Sondak is Chair, Department of Cutaneous Oncology, Moffitt Cancer Center, Professor, University of South, Carol- South Florida, uh, College of Medicine, Department of Oncologic Sciences. And Dr. Sondak is going to address treatment of metastatic Merkel cell carcinoma, including radiation treatment, updates on clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, and managing side effects and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Sondak. Well, thank you very much, and I want to add my welcome to this uh, uh, wonderful uh, collection of of topics we've been discussing. Uh, Merkel cell 
carcinoma is, as you've already heard, quite rare. And and I think it was fair to say it's been an orphan disease, one that hasn't in the past received a lot of attention in clinical trials and to develop new treatments. But fortunately, that's all changing. And I don't think anything has been more exciting to me than see uh, than seeing the amazing progress we're starting to make in Merkel cell cancer in understanding its uh, causes and in coming up with new treatments, particularly immune treatments that are more effective and have less side effects than anything we've ever had to use before. So I'm going to talk about the spectrum of metastatic uh, Merkel cell cancer. And as you've already heard from Dr. Coit, the first place that Merkel cell cancer metastasizes to is usually the lymph nodes. So um, we try to identify that early with what you've heard, sentinel lymph node biopsy, but that's not always possible. It's not that unusual that we see a patient with quite advanced Merkel cell cancer in the lymph nodes. Um, perhaps because they didn't even know they had Merkel cell cancer or what Merkel cell cancer was, um, sometimes so advanced that it can't be easily treated with surgery. So the first scenario that many of us have to deal with is what we call a regionally advanced Merkel cell cancer, something that's built up in the lymph nodes, caused quite a bit of problems, and where the surgeon says, I need help, I need this to be shrunk down prior to any attempt at surgery. And I think this is something that over the years we've had a fairly uh, significant amount of experience with, at least by Merkel cell standards. And we learned early on that we had two effective treatments to shrink Merkel cell cancer in that situation and make it more easily removed by the surgeon. We emphasized the need for surgery because we recognized that often the treatment would be effective, but only for a short period of time. We'd only have a window of opportunity where shrinkage might occur and then the tumor would grow. So these treatments were chemotherapy, aggressive chemotherapy regimens, but tolerable chemotherapy regimens. These were the same chemotherapy regimens that were dis that were designed and pioneered for a variety of types of lung cancer, uh, particularly the small cell lung cancer type. And we found that Merkel cell cancer looked a little bit like small cell lung cancer under the microscope. And perhaps uh, because of that, a behaved somewhat like small cell lung cancer when it got the same chemotherapy, often shrinking, not often being cured. But if we could shrink it down, get it all out, sometimes we could get cures in these very advanced cases. Most of the time, though, shrinking these tumors down required a combination of treatments, chemotherapy to shrink it, and then radiation to shrink it even further and make sure it didn't come back right in that area. And through studies like this, we came to be more comfortable with using both chemotherapy and radiation, even when Merkel cell cancer had spread beyond the lymph nodes to other parts of the body. 
But again, as physicians, we were continuously frustrated when a person would have a great response to the treatment and it would only last a few months, six months, nine months, whatever. Through all this, we were seeing persistent hints that maybe the immune system was involved here somewhere along the way. People whose immune systems were depressed have much higher rates of getting uh, Merkel cell cancers. That was number one. It, number two was every once in a while, the immune system with no other treatment would cause spontaneous regression of Merkel cell and the Merkel cell would go away without any treatment. And the third was sometimes the Merkel cell would get rid of the primary tumor, but not the lymph nodes. All these were clues that we'd already seen in the past with um, melanoma pointing to the use of immune treatments to get rid of um, melanoma, and that were very successful and led to a revolution in the management of melanoma. So it wasn't long before people started to ask, could we use these same drugs and have the same effect in Merkel cell that we have melanoma? And quite frankly, none of us expected the answer to that to be a resounding yes. We thought, maybe these drugs will help for a little while. I don't think they'll work as well as they work in melanoma. We were surprised then, some of us were shocked, to see that immunotherapy drugs that we use in melanoma every day were actually being very active in Merkel cell cancer. And these uh, immune therapy drugs target a pathway that we call the PD-1, PD-L1 pathway. The PD-1 pathway, for short, is a pathway that is used to activate and inactivate immune cells, T cells, in your bloodstream. Tumors learn to use that pathway to inactivate the T cells and prevent their own destruction. And through some outstanding science that I think someday soon is going to get the Nobel Prize, we learned about this PD-1, PD-L1 pathway, and we learned to develop antibodies to block the pathway we call checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and we're now seeing these drugs be very useful in Merkel cell cancer. So the first study used a drug called Evalumab, which is a PDL1 antagonist, an anti-PDL1 antibody. And this was used in a trial in Merkel cell cancer. And again, to our surprise, this was very active. Over 30% of patients, 88 patients, were treated on this study. That's a big study in Merkel cell cancer. 28% had a response. In eight cases, the tumor went away completely. And the response was seeming to last much longer in at least some cases, not every case, than what we were used to seeing with chemotherapy. Very exciting. This drug is not yet uh, a drug that's widely used in, um, in Merkel cell cancer or melanoma. Uh, it's not yet FDA approved, but I think that there's some uh, movement. The FDA is evaluating it. It wouldn't surprise me to see that drug receive FDA approval in the near future. The second trial used a drug that is already FDA approved, is already widely used in melanoma, 
a drug called pembrolizumab, but a drug that's much more well-known for being the drug Jimmy Carter got than for just about any other thing about it. But PD-1 blocking drugs like pembrolizumab and the related drug nivolumab are widely used in melanoma, pretty effective, but it looks like in Merkel cell, it may be even more effective. And Dr. Nyam on this call was the lead author on the study of pembrolizumab. We were very uh, fortunate to participate in all these studies at our institution as well. But um, we were tremendously excited with the responses we were seeing to pembrolizumab. And indeed, in this um, second study, 26 patients, um, four of the patients had a complete a disappearance of their tumor, 56% of the patients, more than half, had a response. Dramatic, dramatic improvement. And we're now, even in research studies, using these anti-PD-1 drugs. Uh, we're using nivolumab in a research study where patients get just a couple of doses before surgery to shrink the tumor down instead of the chemotherapy and radiation that we were talking about uh, before to shrink tumors before surgery. And again, we're seeing very dramatic responses. I've operated on one patient on this study. He got two doses of the anti-PD-1 drug nivolumab. His tumor shrank a little bit, and then a few weeks later we operated on him, and there were no living cancer left. So I think that's just a one-off case, but extremely exciting and shows the power of these drugs and the potential they have to revolutionize Merkel cell treatment. And I'm just going to end by saying there's still a need for a lot more studies, a lot more clinical trials. There's still a role for both chemotherapy and radiation in advanced Merkel cell cancer, especially if these uh, anti-PD-1 drugs don't work on the first go-around. But it's a dramatic and exciting time for patients with Merkel cell cancer and we're really looking forward to seeing how this story plays out through continued clinical trials in the future. And I'll stop there and thank you all for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sondek. Also, a standing presentation and also just giving people so much information about um, the treatment of metastatic disease and also the, the use of immunotherapy. Just amazing new information. And we, I think everyone feels a sense of relief to hear all of the information that you're presenting. So thank you all. And I now would like to introduce Ms. Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care. She's our older adult program coordinator. And Ms. Kelly is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. And it's now my pleasure to turn the program over to Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and I'd like to thank everyone on this call. It's been fantastic, and I think we've gotten a lot of really good information. Um, you know, we've been talking about Merkel cell, we've been talking about treatment and what's coming up around the bend, and really finding ways of managing your care and your quality of life. And so I'd like to talk about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of that network. So a little about us, uh, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area and then over the phone nationally. 
We have support groups, which we do face-to-face in New York, over the phone nationally, and online both nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. We can provide practical help. We can assist you navigate uh, some of the healthcare system, and we do provide some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers. And as I said before, they're completely free of charge. Our social workers are trained really in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and really kind of the overall psychological impact in care. And I think that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all of these areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. As you know, cancer affects um, the whole person and also the family, friends, the whole support network. And so it really is important in this um, to know that you can reach out for supports. You know, at the end of the day, it's a sign of strength. You don't have to do this on your own. You know, if you're in a support group, you can connect with others who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar problems. Individual counseling really provides a space that's yours to voice concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And these connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience or that comes, you know, with being diagnosed with this. And feeling well emotionally um, can help you better manage your overall care, your quality of life, and everything that comes along with that. Um, At this time, we offer a number of online support groups and telephone groups and face-to-face groups for people who are diagnosed with cancer. Um, And again, we do that face-to-face in New York on the phone nationally and online nationally and internationally. If you are interested in any of Cancer Care Services, call us. Um, You can call our Hope Line at 1-800-813-HOPE, and that's 1-800-813-4673. Or you can visit our website, which is www.cancercare.org. Our website's very comprehensive. There's a lot of information on there, not only on support, but also just on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis, treatment, and just ways of coping as you go through this. You know, we've learned a lot from today's program. It's a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Um, Just know that we're here to help you understand what it means for you and for your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or about our services, don't hesitate to contact us. And then lastly, and I I really want to stress this, please remember you're not alone in this. I know it can feel that way. It can feel very isolating to be diagnosed with this, you know, especially a rare cancer, but know that you're not alone. Our services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kelly. That was really outstanding as well. Thank you so much. And it is a lot of information to everyone to absorb. And so now we have time for questions and a chance for all of the participants to ask questions. So I'm going to ask Candace to bring all of our speakers on board so they're all here to answer address questions. And then um, if you would explain to the audience how to queue up for questions. We do already have some online questions I can see, but nevertheless, if you could give everyone information about how to queue up and ask questions, and then we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question, I will be sure to actually um, give you information at the very end of the call of how to get your questions answered. So. Um, so, uh, um, Candace, if you would just um, explain to the audience how to queue up for questions. 
Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question at this time, please press star and then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question at this time, please press star 1. So we do have a question from, we have a lot of questions actually from online participants at the moment. So I'll start with them and then you'll keep me posted if we have anyone on the phone. Um, so the first question is, is Merkel, oh, I'm going to actually ask um, uh, Dr. Niam if he would answer this question. Um, is Merkel, Merkel cell carcinoma a form of neuroendocrine tumor, uh, Dr. Niam? Yeah, it is. But then the next question is, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I think uh, under the microscope, it has features of neuro and endocrine. Um, that's how it actually gets that name. But in terms of, you know, what does that mean in terms of a, a patient or any management? Uh, I think it's it's more limited. Um, a few therapies, as um, as Vern Sondak mentioned, some of the chemotherapies are shared with other neuroendocrine cancers. But for the most part, um, it mostly reflects that the the cell that Merkel cell carcinoma looks like, which is the the cell on the, that's high, highly present on fingertips and lips, the Merkel cell, which is involved in touch sensation, that is a neuroendocrine cell. And uh, so, yeah, it is, it is that kind of, um, it is that type of cell, basically. Excellent. And does anyone else wish to add to that? Or? Okay. Excellent. Okay. And then there's another question from an online participant, and um, I'm going to um, ask Dr. Sondek if he would address this one. Um, and there is actually almost two parts to it. Is there any evidence to suggest stage 3B patients can respond to immunotherapy? And then the second part of that is, are there any trials for immunotherapy in patients that have failed chemotherapy? So it's kind of a two-pronged question for Dr. Sondek. So one of the big, big questions of the next few years that we're going to need some thoughtful clinical trials to address is whether these new drugs that we have uh, like these immune therapies, can be used in patients who've had a positive lymph node removed surgically, had all their nodes removed, and had their treatment, their radiation, whatnot, and can prevent the Merkel cell cancer from coming back. We call that adjuvant therapy. The answer is we don't know. Um, many people have tried to use uh, chemotherapy for adjuvant therapy, there's no good data to suggest that it works. It may have worked in some cases. It may not have. We don't know. We argue about it. We, we worry about it. But we don't have the data. Um, so clinical trials are n clearly necessary. And there is a lot of interest in putting together clinical trials for adjuvant uh, PD-1 and PDL one antibodies. And I'm not aware of any that have actually started yet except some of these neoadjuvant studies that I told you about where people get a dose or two um, before surgery to see what effects we can get that way. So there are some clinical trials, there are others coming online, and I hope we'll see a lot more. Um, the second question was about more um, of what, what can be done for somebody a little bit later on. What, and and again, we still need more clinical trials. Um, these, these immune therapies can be used after chemotherapy hasn't worked, but I think there's a lot of good reason to think that 
the first treatment for metastatic cancer should be immune therapy, and the chemotherapy should be the fallback position. But um, right now, uh, it's much too early to give a definitive statement beyond that. I'd like to add to what Vern said and and, and uh, emphasize the importance of the question because uh, the majority of patients with localized Merkel cell cancer, with or without a positive sentinel lymph node, are cured, uh, whereas, in fact, the majority of patients with stage 3B, that's to say who have a, a clinical or visibly or palpable lymph node, uh, enlarged lymph node, those patients recur. So that's sort of the break point for where we really start to worry about not so much the disease we can see, the lymph nodes we can remove, but the disease we can't see. Um, the, the challenge of, of truly proving whether uh, adjuvant or preventative treatment works after the lymph node is removed are enormous because you need a large number of patients followed over a long period of time. And that's even with cooperative multi-institutional clinical trials. That's very hard to do with the disease as rare as this. The hope, of course, is that if we can identify these patients at high risk of recurrence, um, that this this whole concept of treating them up front to see if the treatment works uh, early on uh, may be a shortcut to finding out whether they really truly improve outcome. But it's a it's a daunting issue, and I think Vern talked to you about the fact that it's made even more difficult by the patient that he illustrated who was treated still had a lump, but when the lump came out, there was no tumor in it. Um, so we, we're learning an awful lot about how best to assess response to immunotherapy. I think these 3B patients represent a unique opportunity for high-risk patients, even after complete surgical removal, where this approach is going to be very, very important. And and it's it's likely that we'll see more of these neoadjuvant studies rather than true postoperative adjuvant studies, which are exceedingly difficult to do. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, there is another question, Dr. Coit, I think this would be f for your, you. It's what is the role of Mohs surgery in treating Merkel cell carcinoma? <laughs> it's a great question, and, and the short answer is no one knows the answer because no one has ever done it. Uh, our strong sense is that, uh, that, Mo that these tumors are at higher risk than, uh, for recurrence than the typical uh, tumor used, that Mohs surgery is used for, such as uh, basal or squamous cell cancer. And so for the most part, uh, it's not, uh, this is not uh, advocated or employed. Um, there are going to be anatomic constraints uh, for Merkel cell cancers of the eyelid or the finger where you can't get a wide margin. But in the fleshy parts of the body, uh, uh, Mohs surgery is generally unnecessary, and, and, and so I would say it has a limited, if any, role for the management of a primary Merkel cell. And if, if I could jump in here and uh, just, just uh, emphasize, I agree it has a limited or, n or no role in the average case. I'll, I'll just say it's not that it hasn't been done at all. I want to make sure what, what Dan said is understood. It hasn't been formally tested and studied very well so people know what the outcomes are. The big issue, Mohs surgery is good for seeing exactly where the end of an individual tumor 
is and taking only that out, amount out. But we know with Merkel cell cancer, it gets into the lymphatics, it gets into the neighboring tissue, and it comes back right in that area in a high percentage of cases if you just remove it with a narrow minimum margin. So you'd either have to do Mohs plus radiation, which kind of defeats the purpose of doing the Mohs in the first place, or something else. It's just not a tumor that in most locations is appropriately designed for Mohs surgery to really be an advantage. And I'll, I'll chime in as well. I agree with everything everybody's been saying. Another challenge of using Mohs surgery routinely is that it doesn't link up well with the sentinel lymph node biopsy procedure that was discussed earlier, which is important to figure out whether the cancer has spread to the lymph nodes or not. So uh, that's, a, that's something that a Mohs surgeon is not set up to do. That requires the operating room and nuclear medicine and such. So it, it, it doesn't make sense sort of medically and logistically in most cases to use Mohs surgery. Excellent. This is, uh, thank you. And this is a whole team responding. This is really, uh, thank you. And I, I'm sure the participant who asked the question and plus everybody else on the call appreciates just all of your weigh in on this. Thank you. And we have a, a question for one of our telephone participants. So, um, uh, Candace, if we could have that question. Thank you. Thank you. And our question comes from the line of Michael M. Your line is now open. I'm calling um, about my uh, wonderful success, I think it is. I've been diagnosed six years ago. I was about the 400 patient that Dr. Neiman saw. You, you've seen my left little finger in some of his publications. My question is, um, at, word, at, the, at the level of the 400 patient, were you taking enough blood or the right kinds of blood so that a test, if I took a test of my blood today, it would be of any merit? Yeah, you raise an issue that I, I forgot to mention. Thank you. Um, and that is that, yes, because of the virus being present in most of these cases, the, it is possible to look for antibodies to that virus. And just this past week, uh, we, we published a, a follow-up study. So this is not the first study. In 2010, we showed that those antibodies can be used to find the cancer coming back um, earlier than you could necessarily with, with other things than an inexpensive, simple, relatively simple blood test. Uh, so that now we, we studied in over 400 patients over the past six years. And it's very useful because if you get the blood test towards the beginning, you find out about half of patients don't make these antibodies. And those patients can't then be tested with a blood test, and they're at about a 40% higher risk of the cancer coming back, even if you adjust for all of the other variables. So they're basically a higher risk group that should be followed if the patient wants to you know, catch the cancer early, should be followed with uh, regular scanning, uh, CT scans, PET scans, this kind of thing. Um, and in contrast, for those patients who do make the antibodies, they have a simple blood test that could be done every few months that we are now finding very often will indicate the cancer coming back even before it would be detectable by a scan in many cases. So this is all kind of important because immune therapy, as Dr. Sondak mentioned, is really giving a lot of hope for patients, but it works better if we catch it on the earlier side. 
and we're treating a smaller tumor rather than a much larger tumor. So we think that, you know, tracking the patients carefully and finding, finding recurrences early will later trans, translate into better outcomes. And that blood test is one piece of that uh, puzzle for how, how we think that patients should be tracked. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, 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 and we have a question, actually, um, for uh, Dr. Name. If you could give everyone this website that Dr. Coit mentioned, um, that would be a very useful resource for everybody. Um, yeah, sure. So there's two two things. Number one, you, if you can't remember the name, I mean, if you Google Merkel cell carcinoma, just those words, um, or Bing, or Yahoo!, Typically, this website is going to be one of the top three or four hits, but uh, it's just MerkelCell.org, M-E-R-K-E-L-C-E-L-L.org. And, and, and Dan and Vern and, and many of us are, uh, across the country and around the world have had input into the data that's in there, and one of the goals of that website is to list the expert centers around the United States and around the world that have doctors who care about this cancer. And... What I mean by that is you can go to any radiation oncologist or surgical oncologist, and they'll be happy to, to treat that aspect of Merkel cell carcinoma. But the centers that we're trying to list around the world are places where there's a multidisciplinary interest and there's going to be a focus on, on the patient, whether they currently need radiation, surgery, and infusion of drugs by a medical oncologist or something like that. And uh, so we think that's a very important part of uh, care of these of these patients, and and um, that website has been supported by patient gifts, um, also uh, you know by by a, by a large uh, variety of of sources, and uh, we we work hard and take suggestions from anybody about how to make it more clear or to in, include more updated information. Thank you so I, I much. Wanna, I, yes, I want to just expand on something Paul said about multidisciplinary management because it's it's very important. Um, and I think it's important, not in terms of how how much treatment somebody gets, but that they get the right treatment. And and very often that multidisciplinary management or the management by somebody familiar with the disease involves uh, involves getting the same result with less treatment. Um, it, this is not one of those diseases where more is necessarily uh, better in every instance. And I think. A, a, a very thorough understanding of the natural history of the disease and what's likely to happen with or without a given treatment is is a, a really important um and that's where as i said paul's done an enormous service by kind of by identifying places where they've they're thoughtful about this specific rare tumor thank you and we have another question. I'm going to give that question to Dr. Sondek. Actually, it's from our online participants. This is really a very the speakers are your speakers are our speakers are wonderful today, and our questions are really very thoughtful and excellent as well. Um, so, um, for Dr. Sondek, um, some Merkel cell patients don't have a primary skin location, but is found in lymph node. Why is that? Could you comment so, on that, Dr. Sondek? Great question. I I alluded to it, but I didn't uh, talk about it in detail. Uh, we believe, we don't know in every case, uh, we believe that um, the, uh, melan the Merkel cell cancer primary site was on the skin but may have been rejected by the immune system. But a cell or cells escaped that immune system, possibly by exploiting that P53 
PD-1, PD-L1 pathway I talked about to uh, become invisible to the immune system and got off and, and took up residence in the lymph node. We know this happens in melanoma. We've seen it happen over and over again in, um, in Merkel cell cancer, and those patients seem to have a better prognosis than the average patient who would show up with the exact same size lymph node metastasis. Um, suggesting that that's the immune system playing a little bit of a role. There are other possible explanations. The Merkel cell could have even started in the um, lymph node, but we don't really um, think that's the case. We have also seen a very, very few number of Merkel cell cases that started, as near as we can tell, out on in places other than the skin, um, mucosal surfaces in, in particular, but uh, those are, are the rarest of the rare. So we think um, in most cases it started on the skin, the immune system caught up with it there, but a few cells figured out how to evade the immune system, ran off to the lymph nodes and hid there until they could grow. Awesome. Thank you. And does anyone wish to add to that? That's really very amazing. Okay, thank you. And a question for Dr. Nim. Um, is there any way to tell if an individual Merkel cell cancer carcinoma case is caused by the virus or sunlight? Yeah, there are several ways to do that. The, the simplest way is now an antibody test that a pathologist can do on the biopsy. That's the most direct way to do it. The people that discovered this virus in 2008 Patrick Moore and Yuan Chang in Pittsburgh also made an antibody that detects the virus. And we have done a really large uh, comparison of looking, you know, ways that you can look for whether the virus is present in the cancer or not. And uh, you, you, can use, you, you can use various genetic tests and such. But the antibody test we, is what we found was the best overall. And that's now pretty available in many pathology labs. And if the cancer is negative for the virus, there is a significantly higher risk that it will recur. So in some cases, that actually changes management. As, as uh, Dr. Coit was particularly discussing, the issue of whether you give radiation or not is a very controversial one in addition to surgery. And sometimes this can be one factor to, con to uh, consider if the virus is not present in the tumor, those uh, those uh, Merkels are about a third more likely, 30 to 50 percent more likely to come back. So um, sometimes that can tip the balance to um, make you treat it a little bit more uh, broadly. And we have um, any other comments on uh, on this question before? Okay. There's another question um, um, which um, I'm going to give to uh, Dr. Um, Coit. Um, um, what if a blood test was not taken before radiation? Should it still be an option, Dr. Coit? Uh, oh, I, I think they're kind of independent questions. Um, the, the the issue of the blood test, I think, is an emerging one. I think Paul has done a tremendous, Dr. Neam has done a tremendous job at trying to define it. It's it's a blood test that I think, Paul, right now is, is something that remains uh, a very encouraging research test that you're doing out in Seattle but that is not uh, widespread. Um, but that can be done before or after radiation. 
uh, optimally, you'd like to sort of serotype the or figure out whether the this is a virally driven tumor early on, but um, no, the and uh, before treatment, just so you have some opportunity to test. But if this could be done at any time, um, and Paul, you might just clarify the sort of general applicability of this test uh, uh, to the general public. Yes, of course, Dan. Um, so as you're saying exactly. You can at any time look at the old tumor, the biopsy that was taken out, and do that um, the the test where you look in the tumor to see using a different antibody is the virus present. Okay, so the, there's two tests, and that's probably you know could be very confusing to people. So one, you look in the tumor to see whether the virus was present, and you can do that at any time. The blood test is a little bit trickier, and yes, it's only done here in Seattle at this time, but it's been clinically available in a official uh, you know clinical laboratory for a, a few years now, so any doctor can order it and have your blood sent. That's done pretty often for rare tests in general. And uh, then that is those antibodies, if you initially have your, uh, you make those antibodies and the cancer is treated, the antibodies will fall quite quickly in the, in the months after that, such that on average by eight months after having the cancer taken out, people no longer have any antibodies detectable in their blood if the cancer has not come back. So it is kind of, for the blood test, it's useful to get that done within ideally about three months of the time that you had, the patient had cancer in them. And then that can be, again, useful to decide how a patient should be followed and uh, to some extent what their risks are and, and such. But again, two tests may be a little confusing. You can do the, the test on the tumor anytime. Um, and then separately, there's the blood antibody test. And it's important to note that some people who, make, who, who have the virus in their tumor don't make those antibodies. So that's a separate thing. If you're younger and your immune system is healthier, you're more likely to make the antibodies. Excellent. Thank you. And um, there is one late-breaking question, one more. Any link? Well, actually, I'm going to give that question uh, to Dr. Um, Coit. Um, uh, any link with Merkel cell carcinoma and uh, shingles? Oh gosh, uh, you know, none beyond the general uh, the general link of uh, of immunosuppression. People who have uh, reactivation of their herpes virus shingles are generally have some uh, associated immunosuppression, either acute or chronic. And Merkel cells clearly associated with chronic immunosuppression. There, there are many many other much more common associations. Uh, such as transplant HIV or uh, CLL. Um, we think that age may actually be a pr primary immunosuppressant, um, but shingles as, as kind of falling under that general umbrella of immunosuppression would be um, um, would be uh, seen. We it's it's a very very uncommon clinical event, um, much more commonly seen in some of those other scenarios that I've mentioned. Well, I have to say this has been an amazing program. I want to thank all of our speakers. I want to thank all of our participants who asked really such great questions and all of you who have been listening. Um, and, uh, and we definitely would want to be doing more of these programs just because it's just, it sounds like there's just so much information and really so much interest in this topic as well in terms of really getting the latest information out there. 
So I had said that if you didn't get your question answered, that I would actually um, provide you mechanisms to get your questions answered. So for those of you who have medically-based questions, I would certainly want to refer you all to uh, Dr. Um, Niems and many, uh, the website that was mentioned, which is www.merkelcell.org. So please take advantage of that wonderful website, and we will also send you information about that as well um, so that you actually actually all have it as an email from us as well, um, that information. Um, in addition, um, for those of you also who wish to call other sites, I would only suggest the National Cancer Institute. Um, they are often have information specialists available at the end of our programs to answer questions. So their number is 1-800-422-6237. Also, if you are looking for a major center that has expertise in this area in your location where you are, that also might be a place to call because they often are able to give you that information. Um, and clearly from our speakers today, you get the sense of the expertise that's needed in this area and certainly um, the treatment of Merkel cell carcinoma. Um, and for those of you who actually wish to access um, just the supportive services from Cancer Care, the psychosocial support, either the practical or financial assistance from Cancer Care, or the counseling services from our oncology social workers, including individual counseling or joining a support group either on the telephone or online, or participating in future programs like this one on different topics, or also um, getting any of our publications or visiting our website, then definitely I would suggest that you go ahead and call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. 1-800-813-4673. And for our international participants visiting our website at www.cancercare.org or others who prefer to get their information from our website as well. But most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with Merkel cell carcinoma or any type of cancer. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support from Cancer Care, and you can call us anytime, and our oncology social work staff will be more than willing to help you. And if we don't have an answer to your question, we'll help you to access the information you need. And of course, we also do want to refer you back, of course, to your treating healthcare team with the information you learned today because they also may be able to, with the questions you may ask that might be different than you've asked in the past, may also be able to be of enormous help to you as well as, of course, a resource. So with all that being said, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and we look forward to your participation in future programs as well, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may all disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.